Good morning. <laughs> so I'm a little bit raspy, so if I, if I lean on the water a little heavy, um, that's what that's about. Um, but this morning I wanted to talk to you about hope. You know, we all have hope. Um, when I was younger, my hopes were a little different. My hope then was that I'd have a really cool bike, a nice ride. And back in, in that day, uh, a cool bike was one with a banana seat and a, and a sissy bar behind the seat and kind of drawn back handlebars, kind of like motorbikes look today, um, at least some of them, and that that was a cool ride. And as I grew into adulthood, I didn't quite lose that hope. I still had a hope, but this time rather than a bicycle that was different from what I had, I um, hoped for a really cool ride, a nice car. So my idea of a cool car is a 1971 Porsche 911 Targa, right? Maybe Brad can appreciate that. <clears throat> That's a cool ride. And when I, I shared this with my wife, she said, yeah, that's a cool ride. Which do you want, a Tonka or a Mattel? <laughs> In other words, I'm not getting that cool ride. But what is hope? Well, hope is a feeling of desire and expectation for a particular thing to happen. We hope when we want something to happen or when we want something to be true and think that it could happen or be true. I think that hope is essential to living. In fact, I would argue that without hope, it's very difficult to get out of bed in, this mor in the morning, right? Um, if you've ever suffered from depression, you know how true that statement is. But hope is more than just optimism or wishful thinking. Hope motivates us and it propels us to push just a little harder, to fight and keep fighting to persevere through difficulties. Hope actually changes our lives. Yet hope must be founded on something that will not disappoint or it will lead to despair and hopelessness. And we do see that in the world. Well, this morning we're going to take a look at Psalm 118 to see what we can learn about the foundation of our hope as Christians. Psalm 118 is in the exact middle uh, of the Bible. It's the middle chapter. So there's an odd number of chapters in the Bible. And if you're using the Pew Bible and you open it right to the middle, that'll be Psalm 118. It's nestled between the shortest psalm and the shortest chapter uh, in all of the Bible, 117, which has two verses, and the longest chapter in all the Bible, 119, which has 176 verses. So this is the heart of God's Word, Psalm 118. It's also one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's not the most quoted. That would be Psalm 110. But you actually will read this psalm in various contexts as you move through the New Testament. It's quoted by Jesus. It's quoted by Peter. This is what they call one of the Hallel Psalms. In fact, it's the last of the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms are the praise psalms um, from which we get hallelujah, praise God. And the Hallel Psalms are um, the six psalms from 113 through 118. And they would sing these psalms as part of the religious festivals. So the big festivals of Passover and Pentecost and the Festival of Booths, they would include this in their liturgy of how they would celebrate that festival. And 
the festival, like for example, Passover, at the Passover Seder, it starts with um, the Psalm 113 and it progresses through all of the elements of the meal and the drink offering and it concludes with Psalm 118. So Psalm 118, as Jesus was sitting with his apostles at the Last Supper, would have been the last thing that he sung. And you actually read about that in Matthew 26.30. It says, after they had concluded the meal, they sang a song, a hymn. And then they proceeded to the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, Psalm 118 has been a favorite of many people throughout history. It was a favorite of Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote, this is my own beloved psalm. Although the entire Psalter and all of the Holy Scripture are dear to me, as my only comfort and source of life, I fell in love with this psalm especially. Therefore, I call it my own. When emperors and kings, the wise and the learned, and even saints could not aid me, this psalm proved a friend and helped me out of many great troubles. As a result, it is dearer to me than all the wealth, honor, and power of the Pope, the Turk, and the Emperor. I would be most unwilling to trade this psalm for all of it. This psalm brought hope and strength to Martin Luther. I can personally claim this psalm is, is one of my favorite too. Of course, those that have heard me teach will say that all of the psalms, all 150 of them are my favorite, but really this one stands out for me because I had a particular time in my life where I went through a, a crisis. It was more than just a midlife crisis. Um, it was in the mid-90s and I had a major life reset and I lost nearly everything. And even as a Christian, I still was pretty rough around the edges. I was a, a smoker and uh, kind of rough and tumble guy. And, but because I had lost everything, I couldn't afford to keep this habit of tobacco up. So I started rolling my own cigarettes. And one day, as I uh, was sitting in my shop on Highway 99 at electronic shop, a friend of mine came in because he knew I was kind of uh, depressed. And he comes in to cheer me up and talk to me. And he looks at my workbench, and he sees this pile of tobacco and cigarette papers, and he laughed, and he shared an, an episode from his life where he was in a similar place of hopelessness and despair. And, uh, and he, he made a comment. He said, yeah, and, and God can deliver you from that too. And then we proceeded to talk about other things. But that phrase stuck with me. God could deliver me from that too. In fact, it stuck with me so much that I'm sharing it with you word for word as it was heard by me that day. And that, it affected me. It actually changed how I responded because I actually believed that truth. I had hope that I could be changed. And that was the last day that I smoked. That hope was founded on the truth that God could deliver me from that too. So what's the foundation of our hope? As Christians. Well, Psalm 118 shows us three elements that form the foundation of our hope in God. The psalm begins with an expression of praise in response to a simple truth statement. The truth statement is, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We see that this psalm starts out with a command. This is actually an imperative voice. So it has the force of a command. Give thanks, and it's an emphatic. Oh, give thanks. What are we to give thanks for? We're to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
And I want to point out that throughout this whole psalm, every time it says the Lord, you'll notice if you have an ESV, a Pew Bible, or if you're using an NASB or a King James, that they capitalize all of the letters in the name Lord. And that's because this is not just a name uh, that's abstract for God, a general name, but it's a very specific personal name for God. It's the name that God gave to Moses when he was at the burning bush. When Moses was saying, hey, who can I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am, Yahweh, is sending you, has sent you. That's, that's this word, the Lord. So we are to give thanks to the Lord, our personal God, for he is good. What does that mean, that God is good? That's a very abstract term. What is good? Well, if you've ever sat through my Sunday school classes and I say God is good, you'll know that I use that as a definition for who God is. God is good. It's what he is. Right? It is his essential nature. What he is, his person and his character are goodness. But it's also uh, he's good in his actions. It's what he does. So when it says, praise the Lord for he is good, we're praising the Lord for what he is, but we're also praising him for what he does. So what does that look like? What does goodness look like in our relationship? How do you take that abstract to the concrete? That's the second half of this first verse. It says, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for his eternally enduring loving kindness. I use the word loving kindness because that's the way it's translated, that word for God's love in the uh, New American Standard. Here it's translated steadfast love. It's very difficult to translate this word love. In Hebrew, it's the word kased. That is, for me, I say it out loud because for me, it evokes that whole uh, completeness of what God's love looks like. In English, when we translated it, we, we, we translate it uh, related to the word love or goodness or kindness, but it means a little bit more. It has the, uh, the sense of charity or mercy or grace, and sometimes it's translated tender mercies of God, and it's talking about this love of God. See, this is where God's goodness actually touches my life in his love, in his steadfast love. And that this isn't just a one-time deal. This is eternally enduring. It never ceases. His steadfast love endures forever. And the psalmist wants us to know that his eternally active loving kindness is for all humanity. It's not just focused on one set of folks. He says, let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Well, who's Israel? Israel are God's covenant chosen people. They're in a covenant with God. That's how the promise and, and the Messiah actually comes to us, is through this line of Jacob, Israel. And that <clears throat> we understand that that group of people can certainly say his steadfast love endures forever. It says, let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. What's the house of Aaron? That's the designated priesthood. That they're the mediators as the nation of Israel was chosen by God, not because they were really cool or because they were really beautiful. And he says, he, 
God says, no, it's not because you're more lovely or more uh, better than the nations around you, but it's because God wanted to show his purpose and his plan through that nation. Well, as Israel was supposed to bring the people to God, the priests are those that are to be the mediators in that relationship. They're the ones that actually bring that sacrifice to the people and allow that communion with God to occur. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And this is a study which we won't go into this morning, but the fear of the Lord, what is that? That's when um, a person acknowledges the true king, when they, um, in their heart, submit to the authority of God. They choose him. He's chosen you. It's that reverse. I choose him. That's a God-fearer. His steadfast love endures forever. We are part of that. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for the priesthood. It's for every one of us. We are part of God's chosen people, his church, and this truth is for us. Our hope is founded on the truth of God's goodness and unfailing love. It's founded on who he is, his essential nature, and his loving kindness. Praise God for he is good and can be trusted to always act lovingly towards us. We find that our hope is also founded on God's help in our lives. We read further, Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. So God is listening. He cares. And when he hears, he answers. And his answer is, oh, poor baby. No. His answer is to act and set us free. And that idea of being set free is um, that you're in a, a constrained place. You're in prison. You're in chains. You have no liberty. And God moves you to a broad place, a roomy place, a place that is for you in his kingdom. He set me in a roomy place when I was hemmed in. He set me free. He not only answers me, but we read, the Lord is on my side. I think a better interpretation of that would be the Lord is at my side. When I think of the Lord is on my side, I think of like picking teams, right? And I want to win the game. So it's like, okay, I'm picking teams. I'll pick you, God. You're the best player on the field, right? So God is on my, on my side, right? No, it's actually God is at my side. He's right here together with me. I am not separated from him. He is with me. He is at my side. And because he is at my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I will not fear harm from man or the world. There is nothing that can take me down. The Lord is on my side as my helper, we read, and I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. He's at my side. He is my helper. He is the Holy Spirit of God coming beside us and within us such that when we look out, we see triumph over the enemy. That's hope. He states further that it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. That idea of taking refuge, that word, um, it can also be translated hope. And in other parts of the Old Testament, it actually is translated hope. So it was an interpretive judgment here to uh, put in the word take refuge in the Lord because it gives you a broader sense of what hope in the Lord looks like. 
It looks like coming under his protection, being sheltered from the storm, to actually have a basis for your hope, a foundation. And to take that refuge in the Lord is better than to trust in man. He is a better hope. We have more confidence than trusting in man or the world. He is a better hope and a better confidence than trusting in princes and the rulers and the authorities and the worldly powers. We're told that that's our enemy, not our help. And he gives then a real-life example. The psalmist says, um, All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. And in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. When I look at that, the phrase that's repeated there, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. What does that mean? Does that mean that it's our action and our power that actually cuts off the enemy? I don't think so. Rather, doing something in the name of the Lord means doing it as a representative of the Lord and by the power of the Lord. A good example of that is David when he fought Goliath. You find that story in 1 Samuel chapter 17. But specifically in 1745 of 1 Samuel, when David's coming against Goliath, and he is definitely coming against uh, a giant. He is surrounded, and he's completely surrounded. He says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Who won that battle? David was there, but the Lord won that battle. He came in the name of the Lord. The Lord helped him. So when it says, I was surrounded by the nations, and the Lord helped me, I cut them off. He says, I was empowered and defended. I was totally surrounded on every side, and the Lord helped me. I was overwhelmed, like being surrounded by bees, and they're attacking fiercely, like a fast-burning fire. The Lord helped me. Then we read, I was pushed hard so that I was falling. And if you unpack this grammatically, you find that the reference here, the pusher, is our enemy. The, the enemy of our soul, the enemy of our spirit is coming against us, and his goal is to destroy. He is pressing hard so that we're at the point of falling and destruction. But the Lord helped me. So what does the psalmist conclude from his experience? Well, we read that the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Let's sing, the righteous hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. The Lord is my strength. He's my helper. He's my song, my praise, and he has become my salvation. The song of salvation is sung by the righteous. Well, who are the righteous? They're the ones being saved. The song declares the Lord's right hand is the valiant warrior, the savior, the exalter. 
Well, in Hebrew, the right hand is a place of highest honor. It's a place of supreme power. When we read that Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. That that is his throne. That he is the king and rules with absolute authority from that place. That right hand of power is a valiant warrior and defeats the enemy, even death, and exalts or raises up those he defends. He is my deliverer and has become my salvation. I will not die, but I will live and tell of the Lord's deeds. That phrase was written on the study of Martin Luther. When he claimed this as his psalm, he wrote that phrase on the wall of his study when he was um, on the run, essentially. He had posted his 95 theses, he had appeared at trial, and he was secreted away to a place so that he wouldn't be killed. And in that place, as he's doing his study and his writing, he wrote this on the wall. He wrote, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Well, I can tell you that I need some discipline. As, as much as I might try to bring good to God in, in worship, my best that I can do is as filthy rags before the Lord. I can bring nothing. I require, rather, his work in my life to discipline me, to change me, to conform me into the image of his son. But the good news is, he doesn't reject me. He has not given me over to death. Why is that? Why does God discipline but not reject? Well, it's because his love endures forever. Amen? This is more than just comforting. It strengthens hope in trials and difficulties. When I look at this section, on um, these stanzas in this psalm, I see just chock full of timeless truth, just setting on the surface. It says that God is with us. He's at our side so that no enemy can truly harm us. It says that God is our helper and defender against our enemy. It says that I will not die, but God will save me. And it says God will not reject me because of his unfailing love. God, our hope, is founded on his help, on God's help in our lives. Finally, we read that our hope is founded on God's Son. We read in verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter uh, through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What, when we read this, it's important to understand that the stanza begins with the psalmist petitioning the Lord for access to his righteous kingdom. But the key to helping understand this is that this is a dialogue. It's a dialogue between the psalmist who is representing us, the heart of man responding to God. So a dialogue between us and God, the prophetic voice 
of God speaking through man. We would call it the prophet. So the dialogue is between the psalmist and the prophet. And what we see here is that the psalmist says, open to me that I may enter. The prophet says, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through this gate. The psalmist then says, wow, you've answered me. You told me um, how I might be saved. You have become my salvation. Let's take a look at verse 20. This is the gate of the Lord. You'll notice first that it is the gate. It is singular. It is not plural. When the psalmist says, hey, open the gates of righteousness that I may come and, and be with you. That's like, yeah, show me the one of the many religions that lead me to you, God. And God says, no, it's singular. There is one gate. And Jesus actually quotes this in um, his many dialogues that he had with his followers. He said, I am the gate, and that all who enter through me will be saved. He made it really clear for his apostles in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's singular, singular gate, the way. There is no other way to get to God. So another thing we'll note in verse 20 is it starts with what they call a demonstrative pronoun. It says, this is the gate of the Lord. This is a pointer word that's to be replaced with another noun, right? So when it says, this is the gate of the Lord, it's pointing forward to verse 22, where it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone. So you could read this, the stone that the builders rejected is the gate of the Lord. That's what's being stated here. It's pointing to Jesus as that, or the Messiah, as that gate, that singular gate to God. And guess what? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus actually quoted this when he was trying to help the religious leaders of that time understand how they had replaced a relationship with God with a religion of rules. And he said, you know... It isn't about that. What you're building, that foundation that you're building of rules and works is not the way to God. It is through this one gate. And he quoted that very, that very psalm, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What does that mean, that this is the Lord's doing? It means that this was the Lord's plan from before creation. It is his work alone. When we look at our salvation, we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. What does it say? You are saved by grace through faith. And it's not your doing. It's the gift of God. That's one of the reasons I want to understand God's love for us. Because that's God's grace towards us. We are saved by grace. And that is God's doing. This is the day that the Lord has made. When it says this is the day, it's saying that that is the focal point in all of history. Everything before was pointing towards that day. And everything since is pointing back to that day. That is the day of salvation. That is the day that Jesus died 
for our sins. Our hope is founded on God's plan of salvation in his son. So what's our response? What's the psalmist's response? We read, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That Hebrew word for save us or do save, we would uh, transliterate as Hosanna. So this is saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You ever heard that before? That was what the crowd cried out when Jesus was coming down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And they cut palm branches and laid it before the donkey that he was coming in as an exalted king. As he entered into Jerusalem, they cried out, Lord, do save us. You are the stone that the builders rejected. You are the gate to heaven. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God, we read, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. The psalmist here is praising God for the provision of his sacrifice. That sacrifice was actually bound to the cross, the horns of the altar. And he was pierced for our transgressions. And we are saved by his blood. That's what the people were crying out. Lord, save me from death through the sacrifice of your son. Our hope is founded on God's son. You've got to remember This was the last psalm that Jesus sang before he went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray right before his crucifixion. When Jesus sang this with his apostles, with his disciples, his closest friends, he knew what it meant. He knew why it was the last psalm that would be read as part of that Passover Seder. And yet, he went to the cross anyway. This psalm ends where it starts. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So what is the foundation of our hope? Our hope is founded on God's love for us. Our hope is founded on God's help in our lives. And our hope is founded on God's Son, our Savior, and our salvation. A hope well-founded is life-changing. I've experienced it. You've experienced it. What is the place that we are placing our hope? Are we placing our hope on a sure foundation? Our hope is based on the firm foundation of God's love, his help in our lives, and his salvation through his Son. We should live our lives in the transforming power of that hope. As Martin Luther was changed and encouraged, as I have been changed and encouraged, I challenge you to be changed, to be transformed and encouraged in the foundation of our hope. Lord, just thank you for opportunity to come uh, 
before my friends this morning as we share your word, Psalm 118. And Lord, we know what a powerful psalm it is that our Lord Jesus um, sang this song as he was headed towards his death and for our life. Lord, we just ask that that would not just be head knowledge for us, that, but it would actually penetrate us, that we would be transformed by that, that it would change our lives in the way that we live. And Lord, I ask um, that you would bless each person in here as they hear these words, that your Holy Spirit would quicken them in their heart, that they can experience that God can deliver you from that too. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this that you're doing. In your name we pray. Amen.